You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by Jet Charge, Australia's leading experts in EV charging. Operating nationwide, Jet Charge helps maximise the use of renewable energy and is paving the way for our electric future. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Driven Podcast. Uh, my name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor and publisher of The Driven. And joining me is Labor's Energy Spokesman, Chris Bowen. Uh, Chris, um, we had you on Energy Insiders recently. Thank you very much for joining us again this time on The Driven Podcast. I'm working my way through the podcast in the new economy stable, Giles. Um, my great pleasure. Good to join you. Well, perhaps we can have you back when you get some solar on your rooftop, if you haven't already. Um, oh, no, I've got plenty of solar on my rooftop. That's already ticked. All good. Oh, OK. We'll have an excuse with solar inside us when you put a battery in then. But look, um, um, you're joining us today because um, you've just taken delivery of a Model 3 as part of your parliamentary car package. You've become the fourth um, MP, I understand, the third Labour MP to, to do so. What prompted you to get a Tesla Model 3? Well, I certainly wanted a, an electric vehicle, um, Giles. When I did uh, Energy Insiders with you last year, I was sort of musing about how I'd make the transition um, but uh, and whether I'd get an electric bike or electric car, etc. But certainly I wanted an electric car uh, to get me to and from Canberra and everywhere else I go. And to be honest, you know, while the Tesla is a beautiful car and, it, and it's, um, you know, very well made and, and it's, it's a, you know, a, it's a world-class piece of equipment, as you know, in Australia we face supply constraints and that we don't have as many options as other countries and um, the Tesla could do, I knew the Tesla could deliver what I needed um, so I wasn't going to overthink it um, I wanted to get on with it and uh, I went with the with the Tesla 3 and I, I haven't uh, regretted it <laughs> well before getting into some of those supply issues I'm um, just tell us about I mean you've 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 had this obviously for probably a week now or something or getting close to a week um, how have you found it Oh, of course, it's a beautiful um, piece of equipment. I, I'd previously driven them, you know, in test drives and what have you. And as you know, I drove one from Canberra to Yakandanda in regional Victoria. That was a hired car. I knew mine was coming, but didn't quite have it yet. Because I, whenever I talk about electric vehicles, I get, you know, on social media, oh, yeah, it's fine for Scandinavia, but not for Australia because we drive long distances. So I wanted to do play my small part to break down this myth. Um like, of course, it needs some planning. I live in Western Sydney, so I'm not an inner city dweller. I'm not a regional, rural dweller. I live in Western Sydney, so I do travel fair distance. So I'm about 35 kilometres from the Sydney CBD. Um, I'm in and out of the city a lot, so that does take some planning. And because I live in Western Sydney, the charging infrastructure isn't as replete as it would be in some other areas. I don't yet have my home charger. Um, I will get one, but I, that hasn't arrived yet. Um, so that takes some planning, but um, every trip takes planning. So uh, it's certainly, it's certainly, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying driving it. I mean, as you know, they're, they're beautiful things to drive, and uh, I'm enjoying feeling good about the driving. I, I'm not feeling guilty about the kilometres and the emissions, which I think is pretty important. What, what, what were you driving before? I was driving a Mazda, um, um, and I previously, you know, like many of us, I've been on a journey, so I was previously driven Ford Territories and things like that. I've uh, got two teenagers and two dogs, and so you know I've needed needed a bit of space. But you know that the um, the Tesla gives me what I need, um, and uh, and gets me around very efficiently. 
And what's the economics of it like? Because with a parliamentary castle of allowance, you get like a lease type thing, which, um, and I'm not too sure exactly the details of how that works, but do you reckon you're going to get payback? I don't know how long you have your cars under the parliamentary allowance. Do you reckon that um, there'll be a payback over three or four years for the, uh, for the Model 3? Well, not financially for me because it's a bit of a different arrangement because when you've got a, an IC, an internal combustion engine, um, you pay, you, the government pays your petrol, um, whereas in, with the electric car, I'll charge that at home um, and, you know, I'll pop that. That's fine. We've got solar panels on the roof and that's going to be minor. So it's not so much a financial uh, payback for me, but it would be for the taxpayer, that's for certain. You know, they're not paying for the, all the petrol. So I, I'm a big... You know, as I said, I, I don't fly to and from Canberra. I drive because I live in Western Sydney. I basically live on the M7. So I'm back and forth to Canberra the whole time. Um, as I said, I'm in and out of the city a lot. So I'd be a fairly decent consumer. So certainly the taxpayer will get um, will get a better deal um, out of out of having the Tesla because there won't be that petrol use. And as you know, petrol's not getting any cheaper. <laughs> well, well, absolutely, absolutely. And um, if you are driving the Tesla to Canberra for parliamentary sittings, then you'll probably have to stop, uh, most likely in Goulburn, at the superchargers there to sort of top yeah. up on the way through. You can well, I normally stop for coffee in Goulburn, so I will, um, you know, I will now combine the coffee and the charge. And um, I mean, I think that's what I mean. When you when you buy a Tesla or, or, or drive a, an electric vehicle, you do think about these things more, obviously. And I've thought about it conceptually as a policymaker, but. More and more, I think we need to move towards charging when stopped as opposed to stop to charge. And I think, you know, industry's on a journey here and I think more and more consumers will drive change. So I already, already in a week have now gone to a particular supermarket because they've got a fast charger there as opposed to another supermarket. <laughs> and I think, you know, more and more consumers will be saying, if you want me to shop here, I need charging uh, infrastructure so i think that will drive itself it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation isn't it you know what comes well, first the charges or the evs but i the more i think about it the more i think the more evs we have the more pressure there will be for better charging infrastructure yeah well that's certainly the case with uh, with my experience of the tesla i've sort of changed coffee shops and um and um and, and haven't quite yet changed supermarkets yet but um on the way look you talked about, about the supply issue i mean it's interesting i mean the, you, you were probably quite lucky i don't know when you ordered your um your, your tesla but um if you order one now you've probably got a seven month waiting list as i think uh, the turnbulls have just just discovered they've just recently put in an order for one um what are we going to do about this supply crunch? Because it's not just Tesla, it's some of the really exciting new models that have hit the market. Um, I'm thinking about the EV6, the Ionic 5. They're both pretty much on rations in the Australian thing. Now, part of that's got to do with global supply chains, but the car makers also say that it's got a lot to do with Australian policies or lack of. Mm. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, we do have to be honest and say it's not just about EVs, there's supply constraints everywhere and you know cars and you know if you're trying to do any renovations or building or anything at the moment i was at a carpet factory yesterday which has gone uh, very renewable and they were talking about their supply constraints about you know all their inputs so everywhere is dealing with supply constraints but you're right there's a particular issue with evs i think basically what we need is a government which has uh, a supportive framework so you know one of our policies that hasn't had that much attention that we announced along with the other policies we announced last year, sitting aside our electric car discount, our tariff cut and our fringe benefits tax concession, uh, is that the Commonwealth fleet will move to uh, low or no emissions, which I envisage being mainly electric. So 75% of all Commonwealth new car purchases will be 
uh, low or no emissions by 2025. That's not far away. Now, there's about 10,000 cars in the federal government fleet. Uh, so manufacturers, you know, we will be saying to them, we really need you to um, supply us. That, I think, helps with the general, where Australia sits with the general um, uh, supply chain within car manufacturers. And, of course, our electric car discount, our price cuts will increase demand as well. I mean, obviously, we'll have an electric vehicle strategy and I'll be sitting down with manufacturers to say how can we best work together. But um, I believe that um, I believe that just just knowing that there's a federal government that gets it, just knowing that there's a federal government that supports the future of an EV industry in Australia, I know uh, will make some sort of a difference. Mm-hmm. A lot of the manufacturers have talked about the need for a um, an emissions policy on vehicles, fuel standards, or such like that, or sort of you know tighter fuel standards. Australia doesn't really have much of one at the moment. Um, Labor hasn't gone there yet. Might you rethink that particular policy proposal? No, no, we 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 won't be taking that policy. The election, of course, there is now a, a a voluntary standard within the automotive industry run by the FCAI, the Chamber of Automotive Industries. Um, and, you know, obviously that has, I, I want to see that um, complied with and work um, and I'm confident that they can do that. I mean, the manufacturers told me that they want to. They, they're very keen um, to make that work. Um, I think that we've chosen to deal with the policy problems that we're faced with. What are the policy problems that we're faced with? Anybody will say is cost, trying to make them cheaper and, and range anxiety. So we'd work with the states to ensure that uh, new infrastructure that the Commonwealth is funding, um, you know, includes wherever possible some EV uh, charging infrastructure. Um, we'll do we'll do what's necessary basically to do with those two things: cost and uh, and charging infrastructure. Mm. The European list of top ten electric uh, top ten selling electric vehicles in in twenty twenty one included seven models out of ten. That are not available in Australia, and often these are the lower cost models. How can we get those into Australia? Um, because you talked about supply issues, but it's also an issue. There's really not much available below fifty thousand dollars, and that's still beyond most people's. Totally, um, yeah. And that's why I mean, there's another way of putting that, Giles. Is there's eight EV models available in the United Kingdom that are cheaper than our cheapest one. So. Mm. You know, that's just, we're saying the same things in different ways. And I think that's really where the action is. Um, it's at that affordable level. Um, and that's why we've really, and not everybody's happy with this, that's why we've really targeted our tax cut at the lower end. You know, it only applies below the luxury car tax threshold. I saw some, you know, Twitter action uh, on your story um, about my new Tesla saying, well, they should abolish the LCT, the luxury car tax on electric cars. But, you know, to be frank, if you're buying a car in that range, um, you know, you, 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 aren't all that price sensitive necessarily. But if you're buying a car in the low uh, range, in the in the cheaper range, you tend to be very price sensitive. Mm-hmm. So that's why we've focused our tax cut uh, at that end. We want to see more affordable EVs in Australia. So we'll cut the tax, cut the tariff for all electric vehicles, all, all uh, low emission, no emissions vehicles below the luxury car tax threshold. Um, and also the FPT concession, which I think we've talked about in, in the past. Uh, the FPT concession is important, Giles, I reckon, because that will take the, the fringe benefits tax off fleet purchases for electric cars uh, at, at below the, the luxury car tax threshold. That's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, 50% of all car sales in Australia are fleet. Mm. And, um, of course, that flows through to the, um, to the second-hand market after two or three years. 
And again, I mean, the Reputex modelling, you know, our, our modelling of our policy, we released some very comprehensive economic modelling of all our climate change policies last year. They indicated even the, the transfer of the Commonwealth fleet uh, would attract new models into Australia because obviously the Commonwealth fleet is diverse. You know, we have, we have, you know, that's across the entire public service. Um, there are a whole range of needs. Um, we would need various model options. And so with 10,000 cars in the fleet uh, and with 75% of all purchases being uh, low or no emissions by 2025, and that's just the start, you know, we'd want to get the higher than that over the years that follow, uh, I believe that will provide incentives to get more um, models brought into Australia. You talked about um, petrol prices um, at the start of this um, podcast. Um, that's been a big feature. Um, petrol, fossil fuel prices, gas prices. We've seen the issue in Russia and Ukraine. A lot of big oil companies abandoning. There seems to be so much going on. What lessons are there in all these global things? And there's so many sort of conflicting in different ways. But what does it tell about Australia's fuel security? Because we've still got this massive, I think it's at least 20 billion, but it could even be more, fuel import bill and a fuel security issue if ever there was a supply crunch. Yeah, and, you know, we are way behind the game in terms of international requirements. And, of course, what reserves we have, much of it's held in the United States. I'm not quite sure how that gets here quickly if there's an international crisis. Um, uh, but that's the way the government's done it. But I think more broadly, Giles, I think um, this actually does underline the importance of the conversation we're having. I mean, the ultimate answer to fuel security is more electric vehicles. Um, you're much less reliant on oil and petrol if you've got a much more EV-laden fleet across the country. The ultimate answer to petrol prices is uh, EVs. I mean, petrol prices nudging up to $2, you know, a litre in some cases, uh, you know, $1.80 around that, that's, uh, that um around that mark that gets very very expensive for families again i think it increases the distance between an ev and a and an ice car um in terms of cost savings and makes the evs just that more attractive and just that more important you know we, we don't people say australia is an energy exporting country and of course we are but we're also an energy importing country but all those imports come through oil and petrol if we can move away from that um, with uh, a, a higher emphasis on EVs. That's good for cost of living. It's also good for our sovereignty, for our uh, economic sovereignty, because we're just less reliant on that. And, of course, we can make the energy here through renewables. Uh, our policy takes us to 82% renewables by 2030. Uh, that's, that's ultimately a good story for emissions, but it's a good story for sovereignty. It's a good story for security as well. It's interesting, you're talking about the renewables and if, if we all go to EVs and we're going to sort of be able to charge them with electricity from the grid, we've seen some landmark announcements over the last couple of weeks. First from Origin about the um, early closure of Araring from 2032 to 2025, subject, of course, to agreement with the unions and, um, and, and the workers. We've also seen Mike Cannon Brooks and Brookfield's bid for AGL, once again with the intention to fast-track the closure of their remaining coal-fired stations. What do you make of these two announcements? Well, let's just take them. They're quite, they're related, but of course they're different. Let's take them um, one by one. So AGL and uh, the Brooks brothers, uh, Brookfield and, and Mike Cannon Brooks. Look, obviously, ultimately, that's a matter for the market. Um, I'm not here to say the bid should proceed or it should not proceed. Um, the bid will either succeed or fail with the board of AGL and shareholders. But I make these points. Firstly, it just underlines what people like you and me have always been saying this transition is underway and the federal government and Angus Taylor can deny the transition is underway all they like. It's happening. 
So it's got to be managed. Um, it's the direction of travel, whether the uh, Cannonbrook's bid succeeds or fails. It's, it's, it's where the world is heading. So Angus Taylor says, oh, all these terrible coal-fired power closures, um, you know, threaten the reliability of the system. Well, only if it's not properly managed, only if we're not bringing on the new technology, the new renewable energy generation and the new storage, importantly, and the new jobs that get created. Now, we've got a plan to do that. Um, they don't. Um, and in relation to AGL and, and Brookfield and, and MCB, you know, Scott Morrison said, oh, well, we believe in can-do capitalism. Let the markets work. Well, if you believe in that, you know, here, here the capitalists have turned up. If I can look at Brookfield, they've turned up and they're ready to work. So how instead of whinging on the sidelines and threatening to overturn it, you know, of course it's got FERB and regulatory proposals to go through, but for the Prime Minister to preempt overturning it, I thought it was extraordinary because, you know, they're meant to be pro-market. They talk about can-do capitalism. Well, he, here's the can-do capitalist turning up to do the job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I completely understand where this bid is coming from and whether it succeeds or fails won't be up to me as Energy Minister. If we win the election, it'll be up to the AGL board and the AGL shareholders. In relation to Arari, similar story. I mean, this, does, this should not come as a surprise. Um, uh, it came as a surprise to Angus Taylor, which I think shows how irrelevant he's become to the, to the energy market because he refuses to accept reality. The key is here, again, working uh, across the board. You know, um, I, work with, I would work with Matt Keane as Energy Minister in New South Wales. We're from different sides of the fence, but we have the same objective of ensuring that the new energy supply comes on, the jobs come on, the storage capacity, importantly, comes on to replace coal-fired power. We can pretend like the government does, that there'll be new coal-fired power stations like Collinsville, it's not going to happen. Or we can have a framework of investment, which is what our Powering Australia policy is, a framework of investment policies, whether it's a safeguard mechanism or rewiring the nation, very importantly. You know, I've heard many of your podcasts talking about the need to upgrade the grid. There's no transition without transmission. It's 100% right. We'll spend $20 billion upgrading the energy grid. That'll bring forward investment. That is the key to handling this change, which is being brought about by the closure of coal-fired power stations. It brings forward investment. It creates jobs in and of itself, the massive investment in the grid. It's absolutely essential to getting the renewable energy uh, investments underway that we need. It's um, absolutely. But I guess the big question for the market is, can we actually build all this infrastructure quickly enough? And it's not just about building wind and solar farms and batteries and pumped hydro. It's about building the transmission links, which seems to be the thing that takes the time. And you've got a very big plan, a $20 billion plan to build all those, but they're not all going to be built overnight. So are we confident still that we can get to those targets by 2030? Because even your 82% renewable energy assumptions as part of your emissions modelling kind of dials in the sort of coal closures that we've been talking about, you know, the Brooks Brothers, as you described them, and Origin Energy. So can we actually do it quickly enough? Well, I mean, we're just going to have to find ways to make it happen. Yes, there, are, there will be challenges along the way. You know, the, our rewiring the nation policy, $20 billion of expenditure. Yes, there will be – that leads to a lot of skills, right? That needs a lot of workers, a lot of highly skilled workers. Um, there's a big process of planning and getting the, the approvals process and the community ownership and the social licence right it's, it's going to take a lot of my time and energy if I'm lucky enough to be energy minister uh, during, by the end of May if we win the election. Um, it's going to take a lot of work, but we've got to be all in. You know, this is what I say to people, to stakeholders. Yes, we need a federal government that actually gets it, that actually understands what is necessary here and has the investment framework, but that's not enough. 
um, we're all going to have to work together, state, local, communities, unions, industry. Industry's left the federal government in its wake. You know, industry has changed massively in the last two years, let alone the last five years. Uh, but they need desperately uh, a federal government that gets the framework, provides the certainty. That's what we would provide. That's what's in our uh, powering Australia policy. It's a very detailed policy. I'm sure most of our listeners are at least aware of some of the elements of it. It's accompanied by the most comprehensive economic modelling that any opposition's ever released about any policy ever in Australian history. So it's all there. The framework's there. And just on transmission, you know, we're very lucky um, to have the ISP in Australia. Most countries would be envious of having a document which lays out what needs to happen. It's, 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 it's all there. Uh, they've done a great job on the ISP. The only problem is there's no money attached to it. Um, rewiring the nation comes along and attaches money to it to make it a reality. One final question you mentioned about Mike Cannon Brooks and the sort of the, the, the capitalists who've, um, or the capital at least, that have turned up. Does the fact that the conversations being led by people like Mike Cannon Brooks and also Andrew Forrest from Fortescue, does that going to make, I mean, assuming you get the job in, um, in May and you are the energy minister, does that make your task that much easier when you've got these sort of major players in the market, some very rich people sort of pushing forward and pushing the envelope as far as the transition goes? Um, yes. Yes, it does, because it shows that, you know, basically industry gets it, business gets it. I mean, I've been very pleased, Giles, with the response of business to our policy, backed by the Business Council of Australia. And remembering, you know, these are, these are people with a lot at stake impacted by our policy, our safeguards mechanism policy, which really impacts uh, on, on big business. Um, and they welcome it and support it and will work with it. So it's been backed by the Business Council, the Australian Industry Group, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the National Farmers Federation, probably the nicest thing the NFF has said about the Labor Party in 50 years is backing out, <laughs> uh, you know, I get on really well with them and work productively with them, but, you know, they haven't always uh, loved Labor policies. They've backed our policy and all the various groups, you know, the Aluminium Council, the Concrete Council, all the groups impacted saying, well, we'll work with the government, the Labor government, if we're elected, to make this a reality. I've been very pleased and it shows just how isolated and out of touch the delayers and the deniers which make up the federal government these days are um it is just they are just the last stumbling block to getting a sensible ambitious climate policy for australia so the fact that andrew forrest and mike cannon brooks both of whom i work very productively with but you know they are symbolic i think of the change in business which just shows uh, just what potential we have as a country you've heard me say it before the world's climate emergency is australia's jobs opportunity we have to win the economic case for action on climate change. We've already won the moral case. We've won the case about it being an international obligation. Historically, uh, those of us who believe in strong action on climate change have lost the economic argument. We have to win that. I'm confident we can win that. Uh, but the fact that business figures like MCB and uh, Andrew Forrest are so engaged is helpful. It is. Mm. Well, if we can't win the economic argument now, then I think um, we're in a big lot of trouble. Um, Chris Bowen, um, thank you very much for joining the Driven Podcast. I know you've got another appointment, so we'll probably draw an into it here. And um, enjoy your enjoy your Tesla, and <laughs> let's hope it um, let's hope it leads to um, many great policies. Should you get into government in well, uh, we've got to come first in the election to implement our policies. Um, uh, you know, we're, we've, we're all working very hard to make that a reality so we have a government that actually gets it and gets on with the job of an ambitious climate change policy for Australia. Chris Brown, thank you very much. 
The Driven Podcast was brought to you by JetCharge, Australia's leading experts in EV charging. Operating nationwide, JetCharge helps businesses and drivers find cost-effective ways to charge their EVs. From home chargers to vehicle-to-grid integration to the largest EV charging projects in the country, JetCharge are paving the way for our electric future.